Hello, this is Rabbi Michael Hatton, and welcome to TanakhStudy.com. Today we will begin the reading of Parshat Pinchas, chapter 25, verses 10, through chapter 30, verse 1, in Sefer Bemidbar. In short order, Parshat Pinchas contains a number of different topics. First of all, the aftermath of Baal Peor, which we completed at the end of Parshat Balak. This includes Pinchas's reward for his act of zealousness, a command to engage the Midianites in battle, and then the census of the tribes of Israel and the Levites in turn. This is followed by the report of the daughters of Tzilofchad, who desire a portion of land even in the absence of any brothers that would inherit. Then the appointment of Yehoshua as the successor to Moshe. And then the Parsha concludes with a discussion of sacrifices for Rosh Chodesh and the holidays, with a particular emphasis on the Musafim, which are un understood to be sacrifices that can only be carried out once the people of Israel enter the land. In terms of broadest possible themes, we might say that Parshat Pinchas is about succession, as a census of new Israelites takes the place of the generation that perished in the wilderness, as the daughters of Tzolofchad rise up to claim land in the absence of their father, as Yehoshua now becomes Moshe's official successor, and as the sacrifices are introduced, that can only be done in the land of Israel. So succession is one major theme, and a sub-theme, preparations, or ongoing preparations by the people of Israel to enter the land, which will occur very, very shortly. We begin today with a short section, chapter 25, verse 10, through chapter 26, verse 4, and this contains three smaller units. The first unit, chapter 25, verse 10 through verse 15, essentially a continuation of the events concerning Baal Peor, with a special covenant offered to Pinchas by God for his act of courage. This is followed by chapter 25, verses 16 through 18, a command to attack the Midianites who were instrumental in bringing about the Israelite failure at Baal Peor. And then chapter 26, verses 1 through 4, which is the command to count the people from the age of 20 and above. One way to look at today's material is to regard all of it as being interconnected. Pinchas the heroine of the events at Baal Peor is given a covenant of peace. This is followed by a command to attack the Midianites, which is essentially a settling of accounts with them for their participation in the debacle. And finally, a census of the people of Israel to see how many remain after the plague associated with Baal Peor. We might call today's section the lethal aftermath of idolatry. Baal Peor, idol worship, 
failure and setback for the people of Israel, the need to engage in warfare with the Midianites as a result, and a census to count how many Israelites are no longer. Of course, if this is in fact a story of the lethal aftermath of idolatry, it would serve as a fitting introduction to the remainder of Sefer Bimidbar and especially Sefer Devarim, which will introduce the people of Israel to the upcoming challenges as they now stand poised to enter the land and to battle the Canaanites and especially to battle the culture of the Canaanites, which is idolatrous and polytheistic. We begin with verse number 10 of chapter 25. God spoke to Moshe saying, verse 11, Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aharon HaKohen, Heshivet Chamati Me'al Bnei Yisrael, Bekan'o et Kinati Betocham, Velochiliti et Bnei Yisrael Bekinati. Pinchas, son of Elazar, son of Aharon the priest, has turned back my anger from upon the people of Israel in acting zealous, performing my zealousness in their midst, and I did not destroy the people of Israel in my zealousness. The key word in the verse is, of course, kinah, bekan'o et kinati, velochiliti et b'nei Israel bekinati, the root, kuf, nun, aleph, depending on context, can mean jealous, as in the case of the sota, where the husband is jealous of his wife, it could also mean zealous, which is to say, to act in an extreme fashion on behalf of some sort of idea or some sort of a cause. Rashi takes effectively the second approach and he explains what does it mean bekan'o et kinati, that Pinchas acted with zealousness on my behalf, binakmo et nikmati, that is to say, he avenged my vengeance. He was angry for my anger. What I should have done, God says, in punishing the perpetrators, Pinchas did on my behalf. Ibn Ezra adds a very, very special reference, and he says that Kuf Nun Aleph is used by the Torah, especially in the context of idolatry, when it wishes to express the very strong feelings we should have against idolatry and how we should extirpate it from our midst. In particular, he draws our attention to the reference in the Ten Utterances, where the Torah says, Do not bow down to other gods and do not serve them. Ki anochi Hashem malokecha kel kana, because I, the Lord your God, am a zealous God, who visits the iniquities of the parents upon the children when they succumb to idolatry. So Baal Peor, being the people of Israel, falling into the trap of idolatry, is now effectively met by Pinchas with a kinah of his own, where this is a kinah against idolatry, and of course, as it were, the verse reports that this was the zealousness that God was meant to execute and Pinchas did it on his behalf. The Sforno adds an interesting note, as it were, 
Pinchas's zealousness serves as a corrective, just as he executed vengeance on the prince of Shimon and the princess of Midian, and the people of Israel did not protest, that, as it were, makes up for the fact that when the prince of Shimon and the princess of Midian committed their crime, the people of Israel did not protest. So the initial lack of protest by the people of Israel, which demands Pinchas to act with zealousness, now is met by their further lack of protest as Pinchas punishes the perpetrators, and that, as it were, neatly closes the circle of infamy such that a correction is introduced to the story and the people of Israel are not destroyed. Verse number 12, Therefore, Therefore declare, Behold, I extend to him my covenant of peace. Verse 13, For him and his descendants after him, there will be a covenant of everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and he atoned and he atoned for the people of Israel. This special covenant of peace which God extends is somewhat unprecedented in the Tanakh. Rashi understands it in a very, very general sense that God, as it were, bestows a favor upon Pinchas because Pinchas had acted so favorably on God's behalf, and therefore the covenant of peace is understood very generally, very generically, that Pinchas will be the recipient of divine blessing. Some of the other commentaries associate it more personally with the events at hand. Ibn Ezra is representative of this group where he explains the following. The need for a breath of shalom, for a covenant of peace, is especially urgent now, such that Pinchas need not fear the brothers, the clan of Zimri, who was, after all, a chieftain of his tribe. We might add, he need not fear the Midianites, whose princess Pinchas killed. So effectively, in stepping up to the plate, having the courage to punish these perpetrators in spite of their very high standing, Pinchas exposes himself to danger, and therefore the divine response is, Fear not, Pinchas, I extend to you, Biriti Shalom, my covenant of peace. The Chizkuni adds a very, very uh, interesting and intriguing insight. He says, We have a halacha in the Talmud that Kol Kohen Sheharaget Hanefesh Loisat Kapav. A Kohen that has killed another person may not recite the priestly blessing, which of course concludes with the word Shalom. And we have a verse in Isaiah, If one's hands are full of blood, so to speak, one has committed a crime of murder or perhaps even manslaughter, such a Kohen may not recite the priestly blessing. Says the Chizkuni, the exception to that rule is Pinchas, 
And that's effectively what's being referred to in this verse. God says, I extend to you, Biriti Shalom, that you will in fact be able to continue to act as a Kohen acts, to offer the blessings that a Kohen offers, including Birkat Kohanim, which of course concludes with the hope that God will lift up his countenance towards the people of Israel and bestow upon them peace. As for the covenant of eternal priesthood, which we mentioned in verse number 13, Rashi indicates that effectively this is the moment when Pinchas officially becomes inaugurated as a priest in good standing, and that from this point onwards, his descendants will be counted as Kohanim as well. Rashi indicates that when Aharon and his sons were installed as Kohanim, effectively the Kihuna was, a, was to pass down through their hereditary line, but only through those Kohanim that would be born from that point onwards, i.e. once Aharon and his children were appointed as Kohanim and were anointed with the holy oil, from that point onwards, any, any descendants that they would have would be considered Kohanim in turn. However, says Rashi, Penchas had already been born before Aharon and his sons were inaugurated as priests, and therefore the hereditary lines could not continue through him until this moment. So the Brit Kihunat Olam for Rashi means this is the moment when Pinchas becomes a Kohen, where that kihuna will have impact until the end of time. Ibn Ezra remarks that in fact the high priests were descendants of Pinchas and it could very well be as far as we know, the Torah doesn't indicate otherwise, that Elazar, the father of Pinchas, had other children, but the line of the high priests would go exclusively through Pinchas and that is the Brit of Kihunat Olam. Interestingly enough, in the gene genealogical lists preserved in Sefer Divrei Hayamim, so in the first book of Chronicles, chapter 5, we actually have the priestly line from Aharon downwards until the destruction of the first temple, and sure enough, it passes through Elazar, it passes through Pinchas, and from Pinchas all the way down the line to Azariah, who is the priest that ministers during the first temple, and uh, up to Yehotzadak, who is the final priest in the line at the time that the Babylonians destroy the temple, Yehotzadak being the son of Sirayah, but of course a distant descendant of Pinchas. Interestingly enough, we find in the seventh chapter of Ezra that Ezra, the great scribe and priest and religious leader who returned from Babylon to Jerusalem at the beginning of the second temple period, was himself a descendant of Sirayah, and Yehotzadak, the high priest active at the time that the people returned from Babylon, Yehotzadak was also a descendant of Sirayah, which is another way of saying that the line of the high priests did in fact pass through Pinchas and continued to do so throughout the period of the first temple and even into the beginnings of the second temple, including such an illustrious leader as Ezra himself. So in fact, this promise of a priesthood, a covenant of peace and of priesthood that would be eternal was fulfilled and the line of Pinchas 
was the most important line insofar as the priestly families were concerned. I'll just note as an aside that at the beginning of Sefer Shemuel, we meet the house of Eli. Eli has sons called Chofni and Pinchas, not to be confused with our Pinchas, but perhaps named after him. The house of Eli is eventually dislodged from the priesthood, certainly from the high priesthood, and it will be the house of Tzadok that takes their place. Once again, we know from the book of Chronicles that the house of Eli were descendants of Itamar, and the house of Tzadok were descendants of Elazar, both being descendants of Aharon. So effectively, the line that matters insofar as priesthood is concerned, Aharon, Elazar, Pinchas, and the descendants of Pinchas all the way down the line, as I said, 20 generations that are named explicitly in the book of Chronicles. The Sephorno adds a remarkable and midrashic reading concerning this covenant of peace for eternity. And he says that the covenant of, pre of peace, as it were, peace from whom? says Sephorno, Mimalach HaMavet, from the angel of death. As the verse in Iov says, chapter 25, that God is Oseh Shalom Bimromav, God makes peace in his heaven, says the Sephorno. The peace here is between the angel of death and Pinchas. And of course, this accords with an early rabbinic tradition that Pinchas, as it were, does not actually die but continues to live on. We see Pinchas active in the book of Judges. Depending on how I interpret the chronology, it could be hundreds of years after the events of our Parsha. And the rabbinic tradition is in fact that Eliyahu is none other than Pinchas in disguise. Eliyahu in Sefer Melachim, of course, never actually dies a, an earthly death. He swept up to the heavens in a fiery whirlwind, born on a chariot of fire and horses of fire. And in, the rabbin, in a rabbinic tradition, at least, Pinchas is Eliyahu. Eliyahu never dies. Biriti Shalom, the covenant of peace, covenant of peace against whom, says this forno, the angel of death. So in this reading, not only does Pinchas's line continue, but Pinchas himself, as an individual zealous for his God, that that continues as well, presumably until the end of time, because Eliyahu is, of course, associated with the Messianic redemption. Verse number 14. The name of the per person of Israel who was struck down, struck down with the Midianite, was Zimri, the son of Salu, a chieftain of clans of the tribe of Shimon. Verse number 15. The name of the woman who was struck down, the Midianite that is, was Kozbi, the daughter of Tzur. Tzur was a chief of peoples of clans in Midian. Effectively, we have a study in contrasts. We have Pinchas, who is remembered for his act of courage, his act of valor. And now we have Zimri and Kozbi. Finally, they are named 
because in the actual events at the end of Parshat Balak, we never found out who the people were that committed the outrage, but now the Torah names them as Zimri ben Salu and Kozbi Batsur, both of them important personages, one a prince of Shimon, one a princess of Midian, and effectively Pinchas now emerges as a counterpoint to them with a covenant of peace extended to him in contrast to the demise and the punishment of these other two. And just to build upon the parallel a little bit more, as it turns out, Zimri is a chieftain in the tribe of Shimon, where the tribe of Shimon is divided into five clans, depending on where I'm drawing my material from, whether from our Parsha and the census, whether from the book of Genesis and the descent to Egypt by the children of Yaakov, there are five active clans associated with the tribe of Shimon, Nimuel, Yamin, Ohad, Yachin, and Sochar, or perhaps Shaul taking the place of Ohad, and at the same time, Kozbi Batsur, Tsur is her father's name, and Sur is one of the five chieftains one of the five kings, as it were, of the Midianites, according to chapter 31, verse 8 of Sefer Bimidbar. Evi, Rechem, Tzur, Chur, and Reva are Chameshet Malchei Midian, are the five kings of Midian. So effectively, we have Zimri, who is a chieftain among the five clans of Shimon. We have Kozbi, who is the daughter of Tzur, one of the five kings or chieftains of Midian. Effectively, these two now come together to represent some sort of an overwhelming power. And now we appreciate Pinchas's bravery in stepping forth out of the congregation with a weapon in his hand and exacting vengeance on behalf of God. For the rabbis, of course, in the Gemara in Sanhedrin, this act of Pinchas would become a template for what's called the law of the Kana'i, the law of the Zealot. As the Gemara puts it, Haboel Aramit, Kana'in Pogeinbo, one who has relations with a non-Israelite woman, may be struck down by Kana'in by Zealots without recourse to judicial process, effectively what Pinchas does in our episode. But even as the rabbis recognize the act of Pinchas and acknowledge that the Torah holds it in high esteem, they simultaneously seek to limit the license of the Kanai to act on behalf of God. It has to be, as they put it, only in the heat of the moment and only if the Kanai has not sought any sort of judicial advice and only under circumstances which are exactly parallel to the ones described at the end of Parshat Balak, only then can we speak about Haboel Aramit Kanain Poginbo. So on the one hand, certainly Pinchas is remembered as some sort of a paradigm, on the other hand, with a certain degree of trepidation. Because as we all know, 
kanaut can be very, very destructive as well. We continue with verse 16, Vayidaber Adonai el Moshe Lemor, verse 17, Tsaroret HaMidyanim Vihikitem Otam. Engage the Midyanim in battle and strike them. Ki tzorim heim lachem b'nichlehem asher niklu lachem al devar peor v'al devar kozbi v'atnesi midyan achotam hamuka v'yom hamagefa al devar peor because they were enemies to you with their schemes which they schemed against you in the matter of peor and in the matter of kozbi the daughter of the chieftain of Midian, their sister, who was struck down on the day of the plague concerning the matter of Peor. So here we have a divine command, Midianim, to oppose the Midianim, to fight the Midianim, to treat the Midianim as foes. And the word of the root of the word Tsaror is of course Tsar or Tsarar which is to say a foe or an enemy, Rashi actually invents a new conjugation to try and translate this word into Hebrew. He says, You people of Israel must treat them as your enemy. Turning a noun, an enemy, into a verb. And effectively, that is what Tsaror means here, and it is in response to their own treatment at the hands of the Midianites who sought to destroy the people of Israel through the episode of Baal Peor. As Ramban comments, after reward has been given to Pinchas, Sechero HaTov Tzadik, now says the Ramban, we must also exact vengeance from the wicked, and that's the connection between these two sections. So we read about Pinchas and his reward, we read about the demise of Zimri and Kozbi, and we, re we read about the punishment that must now be exacted from the Midianim. In verse number 18, the word nichlehem asher niklu lachem al dvar paor is a, is a somewhat unusual word. Nun, chaf, lamed, nichlehem, their schemes, their deceptions, their evil plans. Ibn Ezra simply translates it machshavtam hara'a, their evil thoughts. And of course, we have a memory of Yosef and his brothers, Genesis chapter 37, verse number 18. They saw Yosef coming. They saw him from afar. Before he had actually approached them, they schemed and they planned how they would kill him. So this particular word, nachal, is a negative one and it refers to plans often involving deception for undermining and overthrowing. So as much as the Midianim planned the downfall of the people of Israel, along with Balak and Bil'am, through the agency of the daughters of Moab and Midian and the idolatry of Baal Peor, that's referred to as Nichlehem. And that must now therefore be countered with some sort of a strike in order to neutralize that threat.
verse number 20, verse number 1 of chapter 26, Vayihi achrei ha-magefa, Vayomer Adunai el Moshe ve'el el Azar ben Aharon ha-Kohen le'mor. After the plague, God spoke to Moshe and to Elazar, the son of Aharon, the priest, saying, "Seu et rosh koladat b'nei Yisrael mi ben esrim shana v'mala levet avotam kol yotzei tzava b'Yisrael." Raise up the head, that is to say, count the congregation, the entire congregation of the people of Israel from the age of twenty and above, according to their clans, all those that go out to to war in Israel. Moshe and Elazar, the priest, spoke to them at Arvot Moav, next to the river Jordan, opposite Jericho, and this is what they said. Verse number four. From the age of 20 and above, as God commanded Moshe and the people of Israel, those that had left the land of Egypt. These verses, of course, recall the very beginning of the book. Sefer B'midbar opened with a census of the people of Israel expressed or introduced in very, very similar language. And now as the book winds down and is almost completed, we have another census of the people of Israel about to be taken. For this reason, the rabbis referred to Sefer B'midbar as Chumash HaPikudim, the Chumash of the countings, or the Chumash of the censuses. And effectively, that is us. The, the, senses, the censuses serve as bookends for the events of the book, for the events of Sefer B'midbar. We might say the book begins with a census, a journey through the wilderness is undertaken, it involves all sorts of adventures, all sorts of triumphs, and many, many failures. And now, as that journey comes to an end, another census is undertaken with the people poised to enter the land of Israel. The book opened with hopes and aspirations. Along the way, the people of Israel encountered many, many disappointments. And now, effectively, this second census, which will usher in the entry into the land, is a story of rehabilitation and restoration. The Chizkuni offers a very, very interesting insight in the text of the Torah scroll itself. The verse that introduces the census and connects us to the plague that had happened in the aftermath of Baal Peor, verse number one of chapter 26, and so it was after that plague, God spoke to Moshe and told him to count the people, there is a natural break in the text. Break. There's a blank space in the Sefer Torah as if the Parsha has come to an end. And then the rest of the verse picks up with Vayidaber Hashem, God spoke to Moshe concerning the matter of taking the census. Says the Chizkuni, why is there a space in the middle of the verse? As the Chizkuni puts it, Kan nifsika gezeirat metei midbar, it is precisely at this point that the decree pronounced upon the generation of the wilderness that they would perish, it is at this point that that decree now comes to an end. As much as that generation 
has come to an end, we mark that in the Torah scroll itself with a very sharp delineation, after that plague, after those events, that's the end of the generation of the wilderness. And then the next thing we hear, from this point onwards, the Torah now comes to count the descendants, those that are from the age of 20 and above, because they will actually enter the land. So with this, the first section of Parshat Pinchas ends. And next time, we will read about the census and compare and contrast it to the earlier one.